Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of They Live By Film. Once again, as similar to a couple weeks ago when I did my ranking of John Carpenter films, this is going to be a solo cast with just me, your host for today, Zach Bryan. So, um, as you can tell by the title, and if you listened to last week's episode, you may be a little surprised uh, in a way. We'll kind of get to that in a second. Um, I kind of mentioned that I was probably going to do another director ranking. And I ultimately decided against it. I, I, I could do some. There's some of Bong Joon-ho I want to do. There was like two movies of his I couldn't quite get to. So I didn't want to do a partial ranking there. Um, so I wanted to rewatch them. So today I thought I would give you guys a little bit, you know, since this is kind of to be about us um, as individuals instead of just us as a group. As many of you already know, I'm a huge slasher fan, so it's probably not all that surprising that I went with slasher films, but what I really wanted to focus on is we know how great the slasher movies were from the 70s to the 80s. There's a huge fan of the 90s and 2000s. There was a drastic drop-off, in my opinion, in the number of slasher films and how popular they were from the 2010s on. Now, that's not to say there weren't some great ones. There definitely are. And I really, and we'll get to this a little bit later, but I really think we're getting close to being in a very sort of slasher renaissance. Um, things are getting a little schlockier. So it'll be interesting to see how that continues. And near the end, I'll kind of talk about some of the slasher movies that have already come out in 2022, what we're looking forward to before. So what I have for you today is a list of 18 slasher movies from 2010s to today that I think are worth your time. Now, that's not to say I've seen every slasher movie that's come out. I have not. Um, I actually can give you a quick list of ones that won't be on here because I just haven't seen them. Um, Dave Franco uh, from 2020 did a film called The Rental. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. I really want to, just haven't gotten around to it. Tone Deaf, which is by the director of Trash Fire, if you've seen that. Really funny guy. Uh, I want to see it, just haven't got to it. Vicious Fun, know nothing about it. Cool poster. Haven't seen it. The remake, and I really, really wanted to get to this one before I did this, but it just, I ran out of time. And I'll be honest, it's because I've been catching up on Better Call Saul, so I haven't <laughs> haven't gotten to uh, get to some of these that were on this list. But I didn't get to see the remake of Slumber Party Massacre. I'm a huge fan of the first two movies. I haven't seen the third one, full disclosure. Um, haven't heard great things about it. And finally, I don't have the last matinee on here. Um, that's I, that was on short list. I almost launched it earlier this week and just didn't get to it. So these very well could have made this list and they just didn't quite make it. I also wanted to give three honorable mentions that were just right on the crust, cusp of me really going in depth with them, but I ended up not doing that. Um, the two Happy Death Day films, which are some PG-13 slashers from Blumhouse. And they're a lot of fun. Like, it's hard for me to put them as like, this top best list, but they are fun. Uh, the first one is a little bit more straightforward slasher. Of course, there's no blood and guts because of the PG 13, but the main character is real enjoyable. Um, I really hope they do get a third one eventually because I really like the sci-fi angle of the second one, but they're a groundhog day slasher. Movie. They're fun. They're worth watching. Um, the second one is one I haven't seen probably since it released in 2015. So I didn't want to put it on a list in case it's not as good as I remember, but I think the fact that I could even remember the movie says a lot. So, uh, a movie called Christie, which is kind of a uh, Thanksgiving type slasher, um, kind of reminiscent of The Strangers um, and that type of mentality from your killer sort of thing. I think it's fun, worth watching. Um, I won't go too in depth with it though. 
Um, I wanted to talk about, um, for my last honorable mention, uh, Cult of Chucky, which is kind of a divisive entry into the Child's Play series. But I'm a pretty big fan of it. Like, not enough to put it in the top 18 that I have coming up, but definitely a worthy part in probably what I consider the most consistent slasher franchise today. And I say that as a massive Halloween fan, which... No spoiler here, that's going to be a thing that we're going to talk about here soon because there's been two major entries. But with having said that, um, I kind of want to go ahead and get this because this is probably going to be a long episode, and I apologize, Adam. I will try not to make you edit too much or not at all. But we're going to go ahead and start now. The order of this in is not from worst to best or anything like that. This is in order of year they were released. And I tried to put them in order of release in the U.S., so... I don't count um, festivals and things like that. Um, I try to do wide U.S. releases. Some of them kind of have a question mark there, and I'll get to that one. Um, it'll be actually be in the number five spot. But the number one, you'll go on IMDb and say, well, this is 2009. Yes, it says 2009, but it did not release until, I actually wrote it down, February of 2010 when it hit Blu-ray. Um, the Blu-rays actually had a print. But without further ado, let's get started. So that's the order these are in. So they're going to go to most recent, so, uh, oldest and most recent. So number one, I have the movie Triangle from 2010 or 2009 for those of you on IMDb. Um, so I'm going to read the synopsis for each one of these from IMDb, funny enough. So this one is from Christopher Smith starring Melissa George and Joshua McIver, which is Triangle, which is about five friends set sail to their yacht in an overturned by a string. Yeah. Ignore that. Let me re, let me re say this. I got a little tongue tied. Five friends set sail and their yacht is overturned by a strange and sudden storm. A mysterious ship arrives to rescue them, and what happens next cannot be explained. So, to kind of, I think this is such a great one to start on. And it's why, like, yeah, maybe I went a little technicality when it released for us in the US, but I think it's a fun one to start with because I think, you know, when you're looking at a subgenre like a slasher movie that has. You've been around, I mean, it depends on where you where your argument is. Do you start with, like, Psycho, or do you start with The Leopard Man, or wherever? You know, I'm not going to get into that debate here, but it's at least a genre that's been around for 50-plus years. And it's so incredibly simple. Like, when you talk about slash, you're talking about some young adults or teenagers getting knocked off one by one by a mass assailant. And that's, that's the slasher movie, uh, for the most part. They're course going to be exceptions to that to a degree but that is the general idea of what a slasher movie is so what i like about triangles it does take that premise it takes the very idea of the mass assailant um and it puts it in a pretty unique in my opinion there's probably slasher movies out there if there's anyone who's like real into that 80s shit of sovs i'm sure you can find one on some cruise ship that's not ghost ship um you know, I'm sure I'm sure this isn't like completely unique, but I think it's an interesting one that's not used enough. It's not a summer camp. It's not a sorority house. It's it's nothing like that. Um, but it takes that and it's really twisted into this sci-fi fantasy narrative of kind of what I was talking about with Happy Death Day, but I think a lot better. Like Triangle, I think, is one of the most brilliant slasher films you will find. Um, I really don't want to spoil much here, so I'm not going to talk a lot about it, but just know when it starts with a pretty premise like, oh, yeah, bag head killer trying to kill the people on there. 
keep with it. Seriously. It is so impressive the way this film develops and the emotional core behind it. It's just a unique experience that I think is trying to be replicated with a Spanish movie called Time Crimes and stuff like that. So there's definitely similar ideas, but this one by far is the best executed, in my opinion. So that's going to be Triangle 2010, and I think we're on a good start with this list. So we're going to move on to another country. We're going to get out of the U.S. for a little bit, and we're going to move on to the Hong Kong film Dream Home. Dream Home is about a young, uh, upwardly mobile professional who is finally ready to invest in her first home. But when the deal falls through, she is forced to keep her dream alive, even if it means she would be keeping her would-be neighbors dead. So this film, while it's a little bit more traditional than Triangle in a way, um, it does definitely play with a little bit of that expectation. You are going to be in the shoes of the slasher villain, which is the main character that's, that's in the synopsis, so I don't feel like that's really spoiling anything. Um, and another element of this, which I think, really is a, was a big part of the 2010 horror scene and together is this very outwardly social commentary. And before I hear it, yes, there has been social commentary in horror. That's, I will argue that all day. I am on your side there, but in the 2010s, it was definitely either taken more notice or it was just a little bit more outwardly in that sense. And I think that shows up a lot here in dream home, even though that's a very, very early, um, 2010s film so I'm, I'm not good enough to speak on this um with any sort of authority from my understanding or at least the understanding of what it was a dozen years ago the homing market in hong kong is apparently difficult it is very difficult they had a lot of problem after the home crash of 2008 and i'm not sure if it ever got better i'm sure if there, we have a hong kong listener they would know a little bit better than me but that was the idea behind the film, is it's really, I know, in a sense, taking out this catharsis of the difficulties of trying to get, get a home in Hong Kong during this time. And there's a, there's that sense of tragedy there. You get a lot of flashbacks with the young girl and, you know, how her dream is just to own a home. Um, it is a little bit since I've seen it, but I want to say it's really just because, you know, she never got a permanent home growing up. And... To see the way they tackle this is so fascinating. And then when it actually gets to the slasher element of the film, oh boy, it goes off the rails quick. And it is bloody and it is fun. Um, With that tragedy, you add a little fun to it. And I think it is absolutely a worthwhile film to watch. As of right now, there is not a good, great release. I can't remember who put it out. I'd have to get on my shelf. But I want to say it was like, an artificial eye release, so, you know, not my favorite by any means. But if you go back to our previous interview with the Error 444 guys, 4444 guys, I think I forgot a four. Um, I, I, you know, I had mentioned if they were planning on doing that, and that was one they were wanting to do. So, hey, keep an eye out for them. Hopefully we'll see that eventually. And if we do, that's going to be awesome because it deserves a good release, so... Be able to look out for that, and if you get a chance, watch the film. I've seen it on Netflix a few times as I've scrolled through there to look for nothing because I end up going on another streaming service. But if you see it on there, it's worth your time. It is a lot of fun. So, without further ado, let's move on to our next one, which appropriately is titled, You're Next. All right, so this one is going to be from the tandem of Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett, who have both worked together numerous times. 
uh, on Blair Witch. There's another entry on here we'll talk about here soon that I believe is in the Slasher job. We'll save that discussion down the road, though. Um, so this is probably one of the most widely known ones on this list, and for good reason. Um, so I don't, I, I don't know if there's a lot I can add to it, but just go over what it's about. When the Davison family comes under attack during their wedding anniversary getaway, a gang of mysterious killers soon learns that one of their victims harbors a secret talent for fighting back. So, you'll, you're probably going to notice a theme here with the 2010 horror scene is you kind of got to gimmick it a little bit. Look, we've seen every variation of Final Girl. You know, we've seen Nancy, we've seen Lori, we've seen Sydney. And with Erin, who is the final girl in your next, she's closer to Sydney than anyone else. But I mean, this is way beyond Sydney Prescott when you have someone like Erin who grew up in a survival camp in Australia. And so while this family is getting attacked, she's the only one who knows what they're what she's doing. And really just trying to get them to listen to her is actually the most challenging part. Um this movie is so much fun. I really like Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett together. Uh, they it seems like they've kind of separated a little bit. I'm sure that's just going different directions, but I think they're both massively talented guys. Even if I didn't particularly think Godzilla versus Kong was great, sorry, uh, Adam Wingard. But like I said, not a whole lot I can add to this. It's just a fun movie. It's from the guys who did VHS. So if you've happened to see that and you somehow haven't seen your next, watch watch it. It's a ton of fun. Um, not going to harbor on this one because we still got plenty more to go. So for this next entry, I kind of want to do a little fun fact here. This is a sequel. Um, I do not have the first film on here because it actually came out in like 2009 or 2008, I believe. Um, but that's okay because I'll be honest, I saw this sequel before I saw the first one and the sequel is better. Um, done by the same team, but they had more money and they were able to have more fun. So the, this is from 2012. This is The Collection, which is a sequel to the film, The Collector. Um, so this is by the uh, team of Marcus Dunstan and Patrick Melton, who I don't know how much of a household name they are at this point, but they probably had most of their fame from doing uh, Saw 4 through 3D. Um, and I think there's some really great entries in there. I think they're very fun, talented guys. Who, you know, they're not going to be on Flanagan level or anything, but they know how to have fun. And that is what the collection is. It is, uh, before we go too far, let's just talk about what this film is about. A man who escaped from a vicious grips of a serial killer known as the Collector is then forced to help rescue an innocent girl from a killer's booby trap lair. So, like I said, even though this is picking up right from the first film, I didn't see the first film until after this. And it is not necessary. I think this film works fine on its own. They give you everything you need to know right off the bat. And the main character of this, who um, is Arkin O'Brien, played by Josh Stewart, who I really like Josh Stewart. I think he's got such a distinct look, kind of like some droopy-ish eyes. But I don't know. Like, there's something about him. I just think he's fascinating to look at. I want to say he plays in, like, the Marvel movies at some point. Like, not as a major character, but I think he's in, like, movies like that all the time. But this is his chance to shine. So he is given the opportunity after he is viciously tortured um, in between films to help this father try to rescue his daughter through these mercenaries. And they basically, and you can tell they were very inspired by Saw. You can definitely tell it in the first film. Like I feel like the first film is why they got Saw. 
Um, but with the, the collection, we kind of get to go to the lair. Like, that's something we didn't get to do in the first movie. So you got all these traps. You have all these torture stuff. This is very much the early 2000s torture porn stuff with not quite as mean-spirited, I guess, in my opinion. I don't know. It's, it's a lot of fun. This shows up on Netflix so much. I, I don't know if it still does, but I mean, this is where I, I watched it on Netflix on just like, hey, that has a cool poster. And so uh, definitely go see this one uh, if you want something a little bit more fun, maybe not completely mean spirited, but still has that torture porny kind of feel to it. So that is the collection. And there was a scheduled one, a third film called The Collected which I think COVID has all but killed, sadly. Um, I'm hoping that we can still get it one day. But right now it's not looking very good. But definitely watch these first two. But if you only watch one of them, watch The Collection. Uh, such a fun film. All right, so now we're going to head on to Iran, who, you know, when I think of countries that do slasher films, I think of, you know, Japan, because just because, you know, you know they, not maybe not Japan specifically, but just like, Asian markets that got that extreme nature to them because there's definitely some of that. Uh, you think of France because of the new French extremity. Of course, think of the U.S., the birthplace of the slasher film. Um, Iran or the Middle East in general is just not one I really think about as a slasher film, which, I mean, it's a very universal idea, you know. So it's, it's interesting that you don't really think of it. I guess it's because there's not many of them. Um, recently, Deaf Crocodile, um, who I'm actually going to talk about at the end of the show, so I won't harp on them too much, uh, released a box set from, uh, uh, for a director called Sharam McCree. Um, and one of the films on there, which was the one I was most excited to see, was a film called Fish and Cats. So um, this one is about a number of students have traveled to the Caspian region in order to participate in a kite-flying event during the winter solstice. Next to their camp is a small hut occupied by three cooks who work at a nearby restaurant. That sounds so fucking boring, and it is anything but. Like, this film is completely the definition of experimental, and if you want a longer review of this, I wrote one on the website. I really, really love this movie. I think it's one of the... If I were to do a top five of this list, this would be on there, no doubt. It is that good. It's just a fantastic film where it does... um, Single take, it's a single take film that is not in any order, it does not have a linear order to it. It has flashbacks, flash forwards. It is just a cool film that has a beautiful use of color. And the only one on this list that does not have an on screen death, which is so fascinating for a slasher film. Like, that is deconstruct a slasher film as far as you can. You know, you like you watch those cooking shows where you see those. People like, I'm going to deconstruct the barbecue sandwich, and then it's the most atrocious-looking thing ever. That's not this. It's a deconstruction, but it's really making you challenge yourself and to understand, like, why do we like the slasher film? And that's not an answer I'm going to answer on this podcast. I'm here to talk about fucking films I like. But, you know, what is it? I mean, a lot of people point, oh, it has cool kills. Well, I mean, the first Halloween movie is not exactly... It has one cool kill. Um, it has very tense moments. and But, I mean, as far as kills of the first Halloween film go, they're dime a dozen. We've seen them before. We've seen them since. So what makes it special? And that's what I think this film really tries to dig itself into. Like, what 
what has made the slasher film so almost universal in a sense? Like, is it that fear of being a random victim? Is it, you know, is it just that idea of the tension it causes, the uncertainty, the whodunit of the Giallo film? And by the way, I should have mentioned this earlier, and I hate that I got off track. So if you've gotten this far, thank you. Uh, if you're wondering why there are no Giallo films on here, I am not counting Giallo as a slasher. I'm keeping them separate. Uh, there's, I think there's one on here that might can you can argue, but I've tried to keep them as separate as I can. So just while you're here. Uh, but Fish and Cat um, is just such a experimentally unique film. And I don't think one watch is going to do it. I've only seen it once, fell in love with it, and I can't wait to rewatch it. But I want to let it digest some more. But seriously, um, Death Crocodile has a release of this. This movie itself is worth that release. I have seen one other on it so far, which was Invasion. Cool vampire movie that's also pretty unique. He seems to like to work with time-bending stuff a lot. So that's Fish and Cat. I won't talk about it much more because I really think you guys should just go check it out. Go support Death Crocodile because it's worth it. All right, so this is uh, Fish and Cat was kind of crammed into um, two sequels, actually. And so we had the collection before it. And after it, we are having the sequel of Wolf Creek, which is, of course, titled Wolf Creek 2. I am a massive fan of the first Wolf Creek movie. Um, and the best comparison I can give Wolf Creek 2 is it is what the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1. Um, it, in that sense that I, I, I think the description I've always went with with TCM 2 is that the first film is The Wound and the second film is The Band-Aid. It is the funnier one. It's black comedy, but it's still there as comedy. Um, it's there to, yeah, show the horror of stuff, but it's going to make you laugh too. Wolf Creek 2 is a lot like that. Like, it's not nearly as bleak and horrible. Horrible in the best way. I love Wolf Creek 1. But it's not that downer, downer that uh, Wolf Creek 1 is. Wolf Creek 2 is just much more energetic it's much more fun you get a wittier uh john jarrett as uh mick taylor who you know as far as like iconic villains go you know if we ignore the ones from the 80s and we're just saying hey if they were created in the 21st century who is the most iconic of course you're going to have jigsaw who's probably the most iconic to come from the 21st century but I think Mick Taylor has a good argument to be in that list too. He is, uh, John Jerry is incredibly fun. Um, they have now done, uh, they've done two movies. Third one's coming out. I'm hoping this year we'll see. I'm hoping this year, next year. And it's got two seasons of a television show. I think they've got some tie in novels. So he's definitely got a fan base because we're, we're this far into it. People like Mick Taylor and for good reason. I, what makes, Wolf Creek as a series scary, um, and this is coming from someone who grew up in a real rural area. Mick, when he's kind of putting on his persona, comes off very aloof. No, not aloof. Aloof's a bad word. Um, I just like the word aloof. I always think it means like I I don't know. I think it means goofy and it doesn't. It means educated. So ignore me. It's not aloof. More yeah, I guess goofy would be the word. You know, he's that kind of rural guy that's real friendly. He's a little off, but harmless. That's at least how he comes off. He comes off as this very harmlessly weird guy where he's not at all. He's incredibly vicious. He's incredibly soulless in that sense. 
and amazingly executed by John Jarrett. Uh, Wolf Creek 2 has just some great lines. My, my girlfriend, we actually watched both the films together. We've seen the first season together. She was kind of okay-ish on the first one. I think she, you know, I, I showed her that very early in our relationship, and I think it was a little too dark at the time. I, I wonder how she did approach now, but she loved Wolf Creek 2 because it's got some semi-ridiculous shit in it, and, it, and it's by design. It's, it's ridiculous by design. Um, but it's still, you know, it's got the gore there. It's got the tension there. It's got still got a little bleakness to it, but in a much funnier way. So, yeah, I, I would say this perfectly fits the TCM2 melt, um, especially if the Wolf Creek and TCM are kind of conjoined in that way. So uh, we'll move on from there. The next one we're going to talk about is Curse of Chucky, the sixth entry. So yes, another sequel. I apologize. We'll have quite a few of those. But the sixth entry into the Child's Play series. And full disclosure, hot take maybe. I love the first two um, Child's Play movies. I love Bride. But this, to me, is the best Child's Play film. Not even close. I think it is fantastic. Um, so what is this one about? Well, this one's a little bit more back to basics. After visiting her mother's, after her mother's, <laughs> after her mother's mysterious death, Nika begins to suspect that the talking red-haired doll her visiting niece has has been playing with may be the key to the recent bloodshed and chaos. So yeah, that's that's very basic. This is what the child played bread and butter. But this one is the second film that's going to be manned by series creator and writer, but only one-time director, Don Mancini. Don Mancini has been a staple of Child's Play since the beginning. The only one he has not been involved in is the remake, and we'll talk about that. That's definitely not on this fucking list. But um, Don Mancini had directed Seed of Chucky, and to most people, that is the worst one. That came out in 2005. So Chucky, this one, and this one comes out, and Curse of Chucky comes out in 2013. So that was a eight-year hiatus for Child's Play, which is significantly a long time in a lot of ways, um, especially for a series that's popular, you know. There isn't a more iconic doll killer than Chucky. I mean, I'm sure there'll be people, but, you know, who's going to argue fucking Annabelle, but that's, you know, Chucky's a lot more iconic um, to me. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not going to hear to mess with anyone's feelings about this, but no, Curse is just so well-directed. Like, I, I'm really impressed by Don Mancini kind of taking those years, obviously, figure out his craft a little bit better. There is some really great tension. It's a great-looking film, and it's hard to believe that this is direct-to-video. This was the first film in the Child's Play series to be direct-to-video. And, of course, that will continue because Cult of Chucky after this was direct-to-video, which I also really liked. It's just more experimentation from Don Mancini. And now there is the television show, which has just got renewed for its second season. Uh, I really like the first season, by the way, but I won't get into that. Um, so it's fascinating to see that this work, it really feels like this is what Don Mancini always wanted to do. You know, he always was at the kind of the mercy of Tom Holland or Ronnie Yu or whoever was currently directing the series or Jack Bender, who was a huge direct TV director for Lost and Game of Thrones. You know, it, so this this is him at full control, and it's a much better thing than Seed of Chucky was. Now, one thing I appreciate about 
the Chucky series is it's kind of the antithesis. Uh, I can't say that. I'm sorry. I apologize. I can't say that word. But you know what I'm saying. It's that. It's the opposite of Halloween. Um, Halloween, every time they have this screw up and they're like, holy shit, we have went so far off the rails. Reset button back to Halloween 1 or Halloween 2. They did that after Halloween 6. They did that after Halloween Resurrection. And, I mean, you know, they did it to the Rob Zombie movies, and then we got another reset. We get we get plenty of resets in Halloween. Everything besides the remake is canon for Child's Play, and I think that is so cool. Like, yeah, you got the first three films that are very much your standard thing. They all have kind of the same plot. They're just building on one another. The second one, to me, is the best one of that series. Then he noticed, I think Mancini kind of got the idea, okay, it's getting stale. So how do I evolve Chucky? Bride of Chucky, you go James Whale here. Um, and you go a lot harder into the comedy, which worked decently well for Bride. And then Seed went a little too far with it. So he's like, okay, I can keep what I've done here. Keep Glenn and Glenda, keep Tiffany. But let's go back to basics a little bit. Let, let's kind of mix those together a little bit. Put a little bit more in the history of Charles Lee Ray, who is, of course, played by the magnificent Brad Dorff, who is a phenomenal actor. And has stayed with Chucky for all these years. And it's so great to see. Um, Curse is, I think, the ultimate Chucky film in almost every way. It is just amazingly fun. It's got a good mystery to it. And Fiona Dorf, Brad Dorf's daughter, plays in it as Nina. And she's in a wheelchair. And watching her fight Chucky in that sense is so much fun because it puts her disadvantage and disadvantage in slasher movies is something very captivating if done right. We'll have another one down and some of you may already know which one it's going to be, but you know, this isn't the, you know, I don't even want to say the word fetishize, but you know, make light of disabilities because I think when you're dealing with a slasher villain, that challenge is so cool to see and it makes things more tense. So it's all I'll say about Curse of Chucky. If you've somehow given up on the series after he, you know, killed Britney Spears, man, that didn't age well. Um, after that, and you didn't see any of them after, seriously go with what's been going on since then. Uh, I think Mancini has really got into his own right now. So we're not going to do a sequel, but we are going back to Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett. So there are going to be certain people who are going to argue. This isn't a slasher film. There's a couple entries on here that people would argue or not if they're slasher films. So one thing you may have noticed talking about this is a lot of them, while there are some back to basics, there are some that are just trying to be traditional. A lot of these are trying to evolve the subgenre in its own way. And while there's definitely good arguments for why this film, The Guest from 2014, may not be what we instantly think of. You know, I think Jason is who we instantly think of when it comes to slasher films in that sense, or Michael Myers or Freddy Krueger. He doesn't quite capture that. But it's hard not to call this a slasher film. And so let's let's talk about the guests for a minute. I think there's a good, interesting discussion here. A soldier introduces himself to the Peterson family, claiming to be the friend of their son who died in action. After the young man is welcomed into their home, a series of accidental deaths seems to be connected to his presence. So this has Dan Stevens and Maka Monroe. So it's not going to be the end of Maka Monroe. We'll get back to her later. Um, 
that's just this movie is very Carpenter-esque. Like very, very Carpenter-esque. And I've always put this as if Halloween continued as an anthology after Halloween 3, this would have been Halloween 4. Um, this movie takes place during Halloween. They reference the famous Silver Shamrock mask, which, hey, that's a cool thing to do in slasher movies now. We'll see that a couple more times. Um, but this movie has such a presence from David, who's played by Dan Stevens, who is so menacing but so charming at the same time. Like, it's kind of that Mick Taylor thing, but a lot more reserved, a lot more soldierly. So, oh man, the soundtrack on this is really cool. The way it's paced, it's, it, it, like I said, everything about it feels like a 70s, 80s Carpenter movie that Carpenter never made. And it is just, I think it's better than your next, personally. I think this is their best film together by far. They would go on to do Blair Witch, which is interesting on its own. But the guest, if you want just a cool time, you want something that just oozes that cool, the guest will do that. So that's all I'm going to say on that because I think you should go in as blind as you can. It's it's funny. It's enjoyable. And it's got that catharsis with it I think you kind of want out of a slasher movie sometimes. Okay, so this one's going to be a little bit more controversial in the sense that this one doesn't have the highest ratings. And I, this isn't going to be the most controversial on this list, but... It's one that doesn't have super high ratings, but I think it's really underrated. Um, and that is Girl House um, from 2014. A beautiful young college student moves into a house that streams video on X-rated websites. After a deranged fan hacks the site and finds out where she lives, she spends the night fighting for her life. Now, I can't say when stream, when like Twitch and stuff came out. I'm not a Twitch guy, but I, I feel like it was either maybe a little bit after this or at least getting a lot more popularity after this. I think this movie would do really well now, especially when you read all these reports of women getting stalked on Twitch and you have your only fan issues and stuff like that. This movie is, I mean, you can sit there and kind of put it as like, oh, it's like Reefer Madness or what's that other Madness movie? God, I can't think of. There were two Madness movies. I can never remember the second one. But it's, you know, like it's just there to bring fear into something that more than likely will never happen. Or it's trying to scare people away from the sex work industry, which I, I, I don't see at all. But there has been that argument. Uh, Girl House is very traditional. It's a very traditional slasher movie. But the villain is pretty intimidating and pathetic. Like, he's a very pathetic human being. He obviously has a lot of issues. He gets a lot of his relief from these streams and gets that obsession. And when he is cut off from it, he comes and tries to take his own form of revenge. This is something that I think has aged remarkably well. And the kills on it are so brutal in this movie. Like I don't wince a lot, but there are a couple on here that kind of get to me. Um, great final act. I will say the final girl is a little boring. Like it, it, they do this thing where, <laughs> you know, there's always this thing in slasher movies about the virginal final girl. And, you know, you're in a you're in a sex work house. So obviously none of these people are virgins, but they still try to kind of do that a little bit with the main character, uh, Kylie, who's played by Allie Cor uh, Coburn. I want to say Allie Coburn. But anyway, you know, like, yeah, she's she, she's, you know, sex worker, but she's more innocent than the other sex workers kind of thing. So it kind of 
messes itself up a little bit doing that. But if you're just here for the fun factor of a slasher movie, you really, really can't go wrong with Girl House. And I think it's got some relevance to today that's worth checking out. All right, I kind of alluded to this earlier with the guests, but there's several on this list that people will argue aren't slasher movies. But I'm going to argue it because I think they are. I think they hold the spirit of it, even if they're not a one-to-one of what we consider. And that is the film It Follows, which is really taking the ever-present walking towards you um, film. And most people are familiar with this one. This one's directed by David Robert Mitchell. Um, synopsis are real short for this one. A young woman is followed by an unknown supernatural force after a sexual encounter. So most people are familiar, but I do kind of want to throw out my reading of this film because I get kind of annoyed when people bring up it's a walking STD. It's there to kind of weirdly like Girl House where, but I, I think not confused on what it's trying to say where, you know, people are like, oh, well, it's just kind of saying that hookups are bad. And I was like, I don't think that's what the film's saying because it doesn't make sense. Like, it's not like they can pass it on. Sure, it's a, you pass it on through sex, just like a STD. However, it doesn't work as a one-to-one simply because you get rid of it by giving it to someone else. And if they die, it comes back to you. I don't care. I don't know what STDs some of these people are getting, but that's not how they work. <laughs> so, and I get it. it. It's a rating. And I'm not going to sit here and dog too much on someone's reading. I just think it's gets... I think I don't like it because it gets dismissed so quickly how brilliant this film is. But it's dismissed because it's like, oh, it's just like a killer STD. No, I think there's a lot more to this film. And the way I read it, and this is obviously just my reading. You don't have to read it this way, but I kind of wanted to go for any of you who haven't read, who have, who have watched it and maybe done the same thing. We kind of dismissed it a little bit. So um, if, while I sit there and give a spoiler warning, there isn't really one here. This is just my reading. Maybe it'll interest you. But I don't think it spoils the film all that much. So while people go through the STD, God, I'm getting tired of saying STD. While people will go through that, I think what you are passing on is more to do with legacy, is more to do with living on forever. So let's go through the rules of the monster real quick. So let's say you have it. Your job is to pass it on to someone And if you are decent at this, you will tell them about it. So they have a better chance to pass it on to someone else. And every time it goes, you let, you have less likelihood of dying. And in a sense, that's a lot like legacy in that sense. Like, you know, you think of these, like, let's go back to Kings and Queens. You know, it was always, let's have a, let's make sure we have a boy. So the name passes on. This is a little bit more broad. It's just passing life on. It's, it's that sense of give it to someone else. And you will continue to live on. Just like if you give someone a baby, their blood continues to live on. But if it gets back to the original person, like if you were to kill off, if the last person decided not to pass it on, hypothetically, then that whole line dies if it doesn't have anyone else. You know, you think about everybody who's been here. We've been here since caveman. Our lineage has lived on that long. Um hundreds of thousands of years, I guess, a hundred thousand years. I can't remember if it's more than that, but still you go into that. And I think it fits a whole lot better into that sense of just passing it on and passing it on and passing it on. And it, you know, and I think attacking young people is a, is an interesting angle to that in the sense that, you know, I think people are having children less, you know, 
old, they're getting older before they have children and stuff like that. And so it's kind of interesting to go that angle. I'm going to, I'm going to mumble through this and I apologize because I'm kind of thinking it through. I should have wrote this out because I've had this long thing forever about this film. But anyway, that's kind of the gist of what I'm talking about with It Follows. Um, just a really cool movie. It's got a killer soundtrack by Disaster Piece. Um, phenomenal soundtrack. Uh, probably the best on this list, arguably. There is one I think is better, but it's arguable. I had this on vinyl. It's a really cool record. It's just a cool-looking movie. And just remember that if you disagree with my reading, probably so does David Robert Mitchell, who pretty much made his second film, his next film, all about how reading into stuff is bullshit. So also watch Under the Silver Lake. It's Mulholland Drive, but hey, fuck you for trying to come up with explanations, um, which I'm all for. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. If you had a different reading, these are just my opinions. But before I mumble too long, let's go on to our next pick. So with Stranger Things, we've kind of gotten back into this 80s nostalgia craze. Very much so. Like, not even really argument. Um... And one of, of course, one of the most major things with slasher films was Camp Crystal Killer. You know, you know, you look at Jason Voorhees, you look at hell, Madman, bullshit like that. That was the '80s. That's what the '80s was. It was slashered. It was the peak slasher time because of Friday the Thirteenth. So this is a film that's very much a comedy horror. It is the Final Girls from 2015. Um. I'm not going to say too much on this one because there's not a lot to say. It's just fun, but it's about a young woman grieving the loss of her mother. A famous scream queen from the 1980s finds herself pulled into the world of her mom's most famous movie. Reunited, the woman must fight off the film's maniacal killer. So this is what it is. Some teenagers get sucked into a film based on bullshit and you just suspend your disbelief. It's fun. It's ridiculous. And it's very warm hearted. Like, it's a weirdly emotional film, especially towards the climax of, you know, seeing the mom and her um, daughter reunite. And, you know, obviously she doesn't want to lose her. And it's, it, and, you know, I will say this, it has the world's saddest striptease in it I've ever seen. Take that for what you will. Watch the final girls. It's like a pretty much an October watch for me now. So I'll be watching it again in a couple months. All right, so I kind of talked, alluded to this with Curse of Chucky. But um, in 2016, Mike Flanagan, who is one of my favorite modern uh, horror directors, I think he's fantastic, did a film called Hush that is about a deaf and mute writer who retreated into the woods to live a solitary life, must fight for a life in silence when the mass killer appears at her window. So this is, if you were to look at any of these, this is by far, in my opinion, the simplest film on the list um just in the sense that it is as simple as it sounds but what i like about flanagan is how technically proficient it is it is just it is going to use its single location to the best of its ability it's going to use john gallagher jr who plays the killer who's masked at the beginning and does unmask himself and i think that's incredibly effective how they decide to unmask him um you aren't going to see a whole lot of subverting expectations here. You're just going to see a smart slasher movie that doesn't have a lot of deaths, but every death is well done. It's effective and it's a tense ride all the way through. I think this is after this is when Flanagan's career kind of takes a little bit of a different trajectory. He's obviously doing miniseries more now. He did Dr. Sleep. He did Gerald's game. 
So he was going more into that king type of area after this, but Hush is so much fun. It kind of bridges his two eras of his career together really well. So uh, without further ado, let's move on. So bring back a little bit of the uh, comedy slasher, which was popular in the 2010s. I think people really enjoyed making fun of slasher films. And for good reason. There's plenty to make fun of. I, I, I like it. I like uh, different ones. I didn't put Tucker and Dale versus Evil in here because I didn't know if it counts as a slasher. But, you know, there were plenty like that. I didn't put Cabin on the Woods on here because that movie is dog shit. I know I just probably lost like half the listeners 45 minutes in. But, yeah, so there, there was a lot, quite a bit of comedy. And one that I really liked, and this has been the longest since I've seen, the one that I haven't seen in the longest amount of time. But I remember it so distinctly, so I couldn't avoid putting it on here, which was Tragedy Girls from Tyler McIntyre. A twist on the slasher genre following two death-obsessed teenage girls who use their online show about real-life tragedies to send their small Midwestern town into a frenzy and cement their legacy, legacy as modern horror legends. So, I mean, you see this in real life. Now, this movie is not realistic at all. Let's, let's leave that at the door. It's not realistic. But that idea of obsessing over being an icon, and I don't want to get into far into the shootings. This is a fun episode. But you see that bullshit all the time. You see the... The idea of being remembered, of being important, and especially younger people when they have access to YouTube and TikTok and, you know, these ways to get instant fame if you're lucky enough to get it. But those ones who can't get it seem to fight really hard for it. And Tragedy Girls touches on that quite well. Uh, It's from 2017, so it's not too old. It's about five years old. But this film is one of the most stylish on here. It is by far the best edited film on here. It is so well done. Um, I'm actually probably going to be watching it this week again because the more I think about this movie, the more I just really want to rewatch it again. It is a tremendous amount of fun. And I and I know one recommendation that I see, a lot, or one comparison I see a lot is Assassination Nation. And I understand where that comes from. I don't think Assassination Nation is that good. This movie is good. This movie is just legitimately good. And Tyler McIntyre will be doing the new VHS 99. He's going to be one of the directors, so I'm real excited for that. So yeah, check out Tragedy Girls. I don't know what it's playing on right now, but they just did a beautiful release on the partner labels on Vinegar Syndrome. Really worth checking out, for sure. So another um, little bit of a hot take. I don't think people really love this film quite as much as I do. And I love the original film, too. So this is another sequel, but they're kind of only sequels in name and villain, in a sense. Let's not drag it on. It's uh, The Strangers Pray at Night, which is the sequel to the 2008 film The Strangers, which was a bleak, methodical, 70s-style home invasion film where The Strangers Pray at Night is a little bit like what I was talking about for The Final Girls, where it's taken on a little bit of that 80s aesthetic. It's still modern day. It still takes place in modern day, but this is the fast-paced 80s slasher film with the bright lights, the fun soundtrack, um, just paced really well. Makes them really fun if they continue this series and they keep doing different like time periods for slasher films. It's going to work out so well. But this was directed by Johan Johannes. No, oh, Jesus, I, just, I almost said the thing. Johannes Roberts, I apologize. Um, and it stars, uh, Christina Hendricks, Martin Henderson, Bailey Madison, really good cast. Um, you know, especially for this type of film, this movie is just 
a blast to watch. Like, I love the first Strangers. I love the bleakness of it. But, man, I don't feel like putting it on most of the time. I have to be in the right mood for it. This one, if I just want something, a good popcorn slasher film that has a kick-ass soundtrack, like making love out of nothing at all and uh, shit like that, it is, it's the one I put on. I just have a blast with it every time I watch it. Uh, the pool segment, which for any of you who've seen it, you know which segment I'm talking about. It's so beautifully shot. I'm not ever going to say Johannes Roberts will be, and if, you know, he's also done the 247 meters down films. He's never going to be that top tier horror director, but man, the guy is proficient. He knows how to make things fun. He's a very modern day um, Steve Miner to me, you know, never going to make a classic on his own but he can put the pieces together and make something, make a good time. So this one is a little bit more dynamic than the first film, which took place in one house. This is on a whole trailer park. They're forcing set pieces to just, Hey, this sounds fun. Let's put it in the movie. And you can tell that, but it has great effect. And there's tons of horror references in it. Um, really just seemed like people who wanted to make a fun and engaging slasher film. And, of course, it says based on true events, which is bullshit, just like the first film was. But, yeah, um, Stranger Sprite Night, if you didn't watch it because you didn't like the bleakness of the first one, watch the second one. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. And without further ado, we're getting to my favorite horror franchise, which is Halloween 2018, which is just called Halloween, but not to be confused with Rob Zombie's Halloween or the original Halloween. Um, love the name of this this the series. It's almost as good as Fast and Furious at this point with naming conventions. But anyway, this is going this is a direct sequel to the first film. Laurie Strode confronts her longtime foe, Michael Myers, the masked figure who has haunted her since she narrowly escaped his killings on Halloween night 40 years ago. So this was nine years after Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, which many will claim is the worst in the franchise. I disagree. I still don't think it's any good, but it's at least better than the first remake, in my opinion, which I think is complete trash. I think it's that's better in Resurrection. But anyway, this film kind of started out as a little bit of... There are certain groups, subset of fans that were going to hate this movie no matter what. And the big reason being, every time there was a timeline reset, we always went back to Halloween 2. But not this time. This was the one where they decided, we are getting rid of the brother-sister storyline that started in Halloween 2, we are going to separate Lori and Michael in a familial way. And for me, it was the best decision. I love the entire Halloween franchise. I have seen them all numerous times, but it was, it, it was time to bring that legitimacy back. And we are, we are gifted with a fantastic director in David Gordon Green, who I have been a fan of uh, for years. You know, I love snow angels. I love Joe. I think he has a sense of the small town that I'm not sure any other director really, really understands like David Gordon Green does. Um, 2018 was just like Curse of Chucky in a way, was that return of form. And a lot like Texas Chainsaw 3D, it took itself as a sequel to the first film. Um, now, Texas Chainsaw 3D was terrible, and that's why it's not on this list for me. It was terrible for me. There's definitely has some fans. But Halloween kind of took that idea just... <laughs> Funny enough, just like it did for Texas Chainsaw. Anyway, we won't get into that. Um, but took its idea and made it a hell of a lot better. It's You were taking something that is a little bit stylish different now. We, ha we have the return of John Carpenter. 
as a producer and as a composer, which would be the first time he'd done this since Halloween 3. He had not been involved in the series directly. Since then, he just picked up royalty checks. We have him back. You know, we have obviously um, the best math since the original. We have the best performance of Michael Myers since the original. We have probably the best movie, um, best Michael Myers movie since the original. Let's put it that way. I like Halloween 3 better than this. Halloween 2018 was the what this series needed, and it made a quarter of a billion dollars because people were ready for Michael Myers and have continued to be ready for him. And it's that's why it's so sad to watch Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street spin their tires. I mean, you know, you look at this. It took till 2018. It took almost the entire decade to bring Michael Myers back. And people were ready for him. And I think the same thing will be ready for Nightmare or um, Friday the 13th. Because, I mean, Nightmare, we haven't had one since 2010. It's bullshit, so it's not on here either. And Friday 13th hasn't had one since Hall- uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 in 2009. People are ready for slashers. And as we see in this decade, as I talk about that towards the end, Halloween 2018 may be the reason people are excited for them again. Like, this movie's not perfect. I definitely have my issues with it, like, the way some comedy is in the series, and I think I think there's a little bit of wonky pacing at times, but that doesn't change how well made this film is, and how, you know, when you compare anything to the original, it's gonna suck, and that's just reality. Uh, the, uh, to me, Halloween is the the original Halloween is the greatest film ever made, the greatest horror film ever made. It, nothing's ever gonna live up to that, and I wish people wouldn't stop. This to me is we have David Gordon Green is easily the second best director to ever work on this series. And he shows a lot of passion for it. And I am so excited for Halloween Ends, which is going to come out in a couple months. I am stoked. Um, But without further ado, I can talk about Halloween all day. And spoiler alert, I get to talk about it a whole lot more soon. We need to move on to a film, another film that people will argue with me if it's not a slash movie. But it is, so shut the hell up. We're going to talk about Ready or Not, which has one of the coolest posters on this list. Um, a bride's wedding night takes a sinister turn when her eccentric new in-laws force her to take part in a terrifying game. It's exactly how it sounds. Basically, every time someone gets married, they have to ask this box, hey, are we going to play a game? If they pick um, hide and seek, well, they have until sundown to kill. They have her till sun up to kill her. And you have Samara Weaving as the bride, who has become one of my favorite scream queens with Mako Monroe and, um, oh, what's her name? The girl from uh, Evil Dead and Don't Breathe. Should have put Don't Breathe on here. That's kind of a slasher movie. Oh, God, God I'm going to start adding things. If you want to, that aren't on here that I would definitely add it if I wasn't dumb. The Don't Breathe movies and uh, Green Room, I'm not going to talk about them in depth. I don't want, you know, those are also worth watching. Not going to add them to this list. We'll say they're honorable mentions. But anyway, um, yeah, so Smart Weaving is fantastic in this film. This film is uh, done by Radio Silence, who are now doing the screen films, taking over for Wes Craven. Uh, Mr. Uh, Matt Benatili-Olpin and Tyler Gillert, which I probably fucked up both those names royally, so I apologize. But insanely well-directed film. This is... One, I remember, I saw, I think I saw it on my own the first time. 
And I came home and I got my girlfriend and said, we are going back to the movie theater. And it's simply because of the last act of this film. And it's not all, the whole movie's good. That last act blew me away. It really did. It is one of the, it is just fun. It is, it is original. It's, it's the way you want in a horror film, man. It's just fun. So, um, and you know what? At the end of this, even though I don't have them on my list, I am going to talk about both Don't Breathe movies. And uh, actually, I'm going to talk about them next. So we're going to talk about the Don't Breathe movies in Green Room, even though this is completely out of order. I apologize. Now we have 21 films to talk about. So let's move on to um, Don't Breathe. I can't believe I didn't think of this earlier. You know, I went through so many lists of best slasher films, and it just never popped up. And it's Jane Levy, by the way. That was the girl whose name I was trying to remember. Um, but I didn't put it on here because I, for some reason, these are never put on like best slasher. And I guess it's because it feels a little bit more action crime thriller horror type thing. But I mean, it fits so well. You have such an intimidating villain in the blind man who's played by, uh, Stephen Lang. And, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, before I get too far, hoping to walk away with a massive fortune, a trio of thieves breaks into a house of a blind man who isn't as helpless as he seems. So, they have done two of these, and I'm going to talk about Don't Breathe 2 because it's controversial, and the first one is pretty well-beloved. Fede Alvarez was really showing off his skill as a director after Evil Dead, which is a great movie. His remake is fantastic. I think it's one of the best remakes we have. Um, but this movie's got a lot of energy to it. It's got a lot. The camera moves so fluidly. You can really see why Raimi was a fan of Alvarez. Um, and of course, you, in, unlike it's kind of the backwards of Hush in that sense, where where that was a deaf woman, this is a blind man, but he's the villain um, in a lot of sense. He's the one hunting them down. Uh, and just to go ahead and talk about Don't Breathe Two, the, um, this film um, plays a lot with gray characters. So while yes, the blind man is the evil person in this film, he's only by comparison. Um, the people who are robbing his house are robbing a blind veteran. They don't know what else he does. They just, all they know when they decide to rob him of his fortune, which he gets because of a settlement, because of the death of his young daughter, they come off like assholes until halfway through the film when you learn more about him. But it's only by accident of why they're the good guys. They're good guys in comparison. And Don't Breathe 2 takes that to the extreme. So Don't Breathe 2 is um, a continuation of the blind man, but he's the main character. Like, he is the main character of the film. He is the protagonist. And he is there trying to save his daughter that he kidnapped from her absolutely, completely shitty parents who are worse than he is. They're awful. They are awful people. Yes, what the blind man has done is terrible, but he's still better than they are. And I love the way the series plays with that, which is about the sequel set years following the initial Deadly Home Invasion where Norman Nordstrom, which I didn't know the blind man's name had that, but that's cool, lives in a quiet silence until his past sins catch up to him. It's really, and I, I, many people say I don't, it's hard to talk about this, but let's just say the blind man is called a rapist and that's not an inaccurate description, but it's not done in a traditional sense. Let's just put it that way. Um, the film does not forget that a lot of people accuse it of doing that when the film makes it very clear, he is not a good person. 
at no point is he a good person. He's just the better alternative for this poor girl, um, which is sad and tragic, and it makes um, Detroit look like such a dirt hole. But Don't Breathe 2 is fun, dude. Like, it's a great continuation. I had a lot of fun with it. Um, you know, and I, I hate to see the criticisms because it reminded me a lot of, like, um, The Last of Us Part 2, where a lot of people were upset about having to play Abby. Um, and I don't want to put too many spoilers out there, but let's just say she does something uh, that's not redeemable to the audience. I will leave it at that. Um, and... I think people make their decision based off that without giving it a fair chance. And that's sad. I mean, obviously you can give the chance of what you want to do, but that's completely fair. But there is always more to this, these, you know, these complex characters than I think people should give them credit. And I think slasher movies having complex characters is always going to be a good thing. Always going to be a good thing. So um, that is... The Don't Breathe two, the Don't Breathe series, which we have had two entries. We may have a third. I'm not sure. I hope we have a third. The other one that is also not on Slasher list. Um, I hate that I'm doing this off the cuff, but this will be fun. I, I like giving you guys more options because I think there's so many good ones. Is um, filmed by Jeremy Soliner, who I think is a great director. I think he um, he can split genres together. He can like combine them so well. But I think he um, created a very modern slasher film in a way with Green Room, which was put out by A24. Um, this isn't traditional slasher. It's not like, you know, mass killer thing, but I think it plays out a lot like one. So essentially it's about a punk rock band that is forced to fight for survival after witnessing a murder in a neo-Nazi skinhead bar. So it's a little bit of a survival horror. It's a little bit of a slasher movie. Um, and the way it plays out, you got really likable punk band characters. You have really gnarly violence. And one element that Ryan Hollinger discussed on his video, and I really recommend his channel. It's really good. But one element that I really, really liked is um, stupid decisions have consequences. Every slasher movie has stupid characters. When people are panicked, they dig stupid decisions. This film is no different. These people make dumb decisions, but they're natural dumb decisions, and they are punished for them horribly like they pay for their mistakes and it's when they have to make decisions and plan that they're successful you are having people who have to act intelligently to try to get out of a shitty situation green room is a tense cool horror thriller that i would say fits greatly in the slasher genre um and since i was already supposed to be talking about we're going to move on to our next one because i am going to i gotta see how long this is going to be so for those of you who have stuck around with me for um, over an hour, Jesus, guys, if you stuck around with me for an hour listening to me rant and rave about slasher films, thank you so much. We are actually near the end. We have two more entries until I move on to the next section. So I like that that little audible we got to do where I got to add a few more movies um, that I wish. And, you know, I looked there. I don't want to sound like I just started this list and did it in 10 minutes and came in here. I did a lot of research for this list. And I blanked out on them until I started talking about Jane Levy uh, because of Ready or Not. And it's funny how that works, right? And it's all down to definition, too. Like, some people are like, those aren't slasher movies. I think they fit well enough. I think they work. And I think it's just the natural evolution of the genre in a lot of ways. But we're going to move on to the most controversial on this, on this list, which is David Gordon Green's sequel to 2018 Halloween with Halloween Kills.
I hope you guys are ready for me to rant and rave. This is going to be long. Um, surviving victims of Michael Myers form a vigilante mob and vow to end his reign of terror after they discover he is still alive. This is, without doubt, the second in the franchise for me. I love Halloween Kills. I have seen this film seven times since it released last October, which may not seem a lot to some people. It is a lot for me. I don't rewatch movies that often. This movie is, I think, is, and this is where people are going to think I'm taking the piss or whatever, but I'm not. This movie is just really fucking smart about how it does things. And it gets called dumb, it gets called stupid, and I don't think that's fair to it. I think it is a very over-the-top film, completely by design. And if that's not your thing when it comes to a slasher movie, that's beyond fair. Um, this isn't going to be a slasher movie for everyone. This is this was called the ultimate slasher film by Carpenter. And I think it fits completely in that sense. And it is. But that doesn't mean it's without plot. I think that gets thrown around a lot. It's a plotless film. That is not true. I, I will accept most criticisms, but I just find that completely incorrect. It has a plot. We just read it, actually. But it's actually a little bit more in depth than that, um, and I will. All, and I don't want to get into this now, but there's a big difference in plot and story. There is a lot of story with this as well. Um, and one thing it really touches on, and it's kind of eerie, and they kind of talked about. Of course, this was filmed in 2020. This was not filmed in 2021, but of course, January of that year, actually on my birthday, there was the mob thing that happened at the Capitol building in the U.S. For any of you familiar with that, the riots over there. And, you know, so I, I don't accept when people talk about people aren't this stupid. Absolutely, they are. People are stupid. People are stupid in groups. That's nothing new. And um, so people, and my favorite scene of this film, which is probably the most controversial, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about, is I adore the scene in the hospital. It has some of Carpenter's best work as a composer. It's completely tense and it doesn't slow down the film at all. It shows like something we've never seen in this series, which is how well Michael's reach of chaos really goes. He never shows up at the hospital. That's a minor spoiler, but he does not show up to the hospital. This isn't Halloween two all over again, <clears throat> but he's there in spirit. He is literally like the spirit of him is there. And it is to me so brilliant. And, this film is, in a lot of ways, essentially a ensemble piece. I've always said the main character of this film can be argued two ways. Either the main character is Michael Myers, or the main character is Haddonfield as a whole. I like the Haddonfield as a whole a little bit better, but I think both have merits of who the main character is and what the film is about. Um, and seeing how far and how far figure can go I think is so well done. The flashback scenes of this really set up a lot of the stuff people complain about and then praise the flashback scene for. I think given time, Halloween kills will age extraordinarily well. I think we are moving, in my opinion, this isn't this is just based on my opinion, but I think we're about to hit a very slocky era of horror again. Like it's still gonna be mixed with a lot of like the um the commentary we see a lot now, um, it's a little bit more, you know, that is something that a lot of them push. Um, I think we're still going to see that, but we're going to see it in a schlocky setting. And the reason I say that is because in 2021, we had Halloween Kills, and we also had Malignant. 
which was also one of the more controversial films of that year. And I think that says a lot. You know, you have James Wan, who to me has always been the forefront of how modern horror is changing. He was there in 2004 to popularize torture porn with Saw. He was there in 2013 with The Conjuring. I mean, he has always kind of been at that forefront of everything. And then you have David Gordon Green, who, while people will complain about him because of Halloween Kills, is one of the more talented people working in slasher films. Having them go towards a slocky feel in the same year, disconnected from one another, I think says a lot. And I think we're going to see more of that as we go along. If it's not obvious my voice is about to go, I have been talking so much. Um, so I'm going to keep this short. This was actually going to be a super long section, but I could go on all day. I've defended this movie tooth and nail and will continue to do so. I've seen it numerous times. And no, that isn't to say that you do not see the problems with the movie. Yes, there are problems with the film. And I hate when people bring that up because, and this is going to be a little bit of a tangent for me, every film on the planet has issues. I don't have to note every one of them to justify my feelings of it. I get real tired of that. Like, oh, well, let me bring up the dialogue, even though I don't even think the dialogue's about, yeah, there's stupid shit in the dialogue. But I think a lot of it's by design. I think it's a very over-the-top film on purpose. But, like, I shouldn't have to note that just to praise the film. I shouldn't have to give a negative just to justify me praising it. Like, I think that's stupid. Like, I really do. I don't think I should have to justify anything. It's, I like it. <laughs> and this has been such an ongoing battle for 10 months now. And I think give it some time. I think Halloween Kills will end up being at least a cult favorite. You know, and I think that's really cool. I hope that's the case. Because, God, I hate having to talk about Halloween Kills to people and, you know, have them act like that everyone hates it and it's just not fucking true. It's actually fairly well-liked. Outside the internet, I guess people need, you know, need to talk to more people. But, you know, I'm not going to get into that. It, sh it shouldn't matter if you were the only person who likes a movie, because what's important is you like it. So I'm not even going to bring up any more of the uh, do other people like it or not. Because honestly, I take that back because it doesn't matter. As long as you like it, that's all that matters. And as long as you justify it in a way that makes sense to you, that's the beauty of movies. So before I go on forever and ever and ever about Halloween Kills. Let's move on to the last one on this fucking list. And uh, we're going to talk about one the most recent on this list. It's from this year, and it is the movie by Ty West, X. All right, and X is, in 1979, a group of young filmmakers set out to make an adult film in rural Texas. When their reclusive elderly hosts catch them in the act, the cast find themselves fighting for their lives. You like 70s movies, for the love of God, watch X. Best part, the prequel to this movie, Pearl, which is another slasher movie, comes out in September. We are a month and a half away. Because Ty West got to film these back-to-back, -back, um, and with A24 doing it, I'm not one of these A24 fanboys, but I do think they have a voice in horror. Like, I think what they do matters. I think, just like Blumhouse, what Blumhouse does matters. As much as people want to kind of pit them against each other, they are both important voices for the industry. And X doing slasher films, and they've got more coming out this year, which I'm going to talk about after I'm finished this last film up. Um, that matters. That says a lot. And I think that really speaks volumes of the slashers we're going to get next year. But X is, my, so far, my favorite film of the year. Uh, it is just a brilliant film. It is, to me, the best film on this list. 
And it's exciting to see. I haven't loved the film this much since Parasite in 2019. And just the way it captures the era, the way the, how likable the cast is, how much it has to say about um, your own body and the way, um, you know, traditionalism versus uh, being provocative and things such as that is really cool and it really means something and it feels so thoughtful and it brings a great discussion it's got a great soundtrack yeah don't fear the reaper has been used in like half the slasher films ever made but i will never get tired of it because don't feel the reaper is awesome and everything else on this uh put the lime and the coconuts in this uh, act naturally is in this um it's just a good soundtrack. It's a fun time, um, and it feels a lot more authentic than a lot of your '80s attempts are that have been that have come out. And I'm not gonna name names right now, but like, this feels authentic to the '70s. This feels thought out. Like every death, I noticed this the second time I watched it. Every death is foreshadowed in such an interesting and unique way, and I love it. Like I just, I, I get so into this film. I, I think it's the best film of the year. And I will be so impressed if Pearl, which comes out this year, is even in the top five. Because a director having that good of horror films in one year seems unlikely, but exciting. And I am very excited to see where Pearl goes. But if you haven't got a chance to see X, it's out on Blu-ray. It's out digitally. Please, please, please go see it before Pearl comes out. I think you'll be real excited it had a low box office, but it had critical acclaim, and for good reason. The critical acclaim is earned in this film. Okay, so a couple things I want to touch on. That's the whole list. That's all 21 films for you guys. And if you find at least one or two that you say, you know what, that was pretty good, I, I will be pretty thrilled with that. I hope some of these, like I said, some of these are well-known, and some of these hopefully aren't. So hopefully some of these you've never heard of, and this is new to you. So I wanted to talk about um, some things that weren't included on this list, and that is slasher television shows. I did that on purpose. For any of you who don't know, there are a lot of slasher television shows. Um, probably one of the first, not the first, I'm sure, but one of the first I remember from my childhood was um, Harper's Island. Um, and they had this huge gimmick. Of course, it was on, like, regular television, so they didn't do anything too violent. But it had blood. It had, it had decent blood. It came out a little late. Um... But it was basically a pretty traditional slasher story, but the gimmick was at least one person will die per episode. They'd advertise it every week. It lasted for one season. And I haven't seen it since it came out, but I have good memories of it. Um, but slashers have evolved, I'm sure, quite a bit since Harper's Island. I mean, I think I mentioned a little bit earlier about the Chucky television show. So we have a Chucky TV show. Season two is about to hit. Um we have the Slasher television show, which I actually just started. I'm hoping to get through it. Season one's been a little rough, but I keep getting reassured seasons two and three are fantastic. So really excited to get to them. Um, American Horror Story had 1984, which I've heard is very good. I haven't watched it yet because, oh God, let me get on Ryan Murphy for a second. So Ryan Murphy, I think, is a brilliant writer. I really like Ryan Murphy. The problem I have with Ryan Murphy is he needs someone to hold his ideas for him. Because, like, his his shows start out real good, and then they end up so far off the rails, they, it's just like throwing spaghetti at a wall just to see what happens. But he's got so many great ideas that I wish he would, I don't know. I, I don't know what the solution is, but that's the, the common thing. So I haven't seen an American Horror Story since Freak Show. That was the last one I saw. 
I will get to around the 1984, if nothing else, just as a big slasher guy. Um, and then the craziest slasher one to me, I mentioned Wolf Creek earlier, so Wolf Creek's got a television show. But the craziest one to me is they're going to successfully trick me into watching Pretty Little Liars. A show I've never been interested in, but uh, they have a new show that just came on on HBO Max like a couple days after recording, uh, before recording this. And that is Original Sin. Um, apparently it's a whole new thing, so I don't think you have to watch the rest of Pretty Little Liars, which is good. But from what I've heard, I've heard positive things. I think even Bloody Disgusting said it was one of the best slasher TV, sh- small screen slashers to date. And that's that, that's a big claim. There's been some decent ones. Um, so I would really, really like that to be true. So hopefully uh, if I get to do, ever get to do a part two of this slasher thing, I may do television shows and maybe add a few movies that I didn't get around to for this list. But I think that's exciting. Um, so, you know, be on look at that. If you're not into um, the movie side of things, you're more on the TV side of things. There's some shows out there for you that could maybe scratch that slasher itch, or if you want to get into slashers, may not be a bad place to start. So I think the last thing I want to talk about is 2022, which I'm kind of informally calling like this year of the return of slashers. Like, of course, we've got Halloween ends coming this year, but as far as big slashers go, we had Ghostface back this year at the beginning of the year. We had Texas Chainsaw Massacre back. And people can say what they want to about some of those, but it's exciting to have Leatherface, Ghostface, and Michael Myers back in a single year. That's so cool. Um, there's actually a lot more that's come out this year um, that I think is going to be interesting to see. We're going to get a sequel or a prequel or whatever to Orphan. We'll call it Orphan First Kill. So that's going to be cool to see. I know I've never been like the biggest fan of Orphan. I think it's fine, but it has a huge fan base. So I'm really excited for them. Uh, controversially, we'll have a uh, return of Jeepers Creepers. Um, won't get into that. Uh, I'll be watching it. So look out for a review, but if it's not something you want to support, that's understandable. I will say Victor Salva does not seem to be involved. So take it for what you will. Um, some people that's tarnished too late now, but either way that's coming out this year. So we got another franchise continuing. Um, we had X this year, which was original. We have Pearl, which is going to be a prequel to that in the same year. Um, and then we have a 24 has got another, um, slasher besides those two, which is called bodies, 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 which from the previews is either going to be actually really well and extremely funny or it's going to be absolutely terrible, and I'm not sure which one yet. So that'll be exciting to see. Um, I think it's got some potential, though. I think it looks stylish and colorful and stupid as shit, and I'm kind of into it. Uh, Kevin Bacon, who, of course, got a lot of fame uh, from his appearance in the first Friday 13th film, is coming a little bit back to slashers. Uh, he kind of did that with Hollow Man, but he'll be doing it a little bit more directly with They Slash Them, which is going to be a Peacock movie. That's somehow going to make me watch a peacock get to peacock or something whatever that is like uh, it's streaming service that's all i know about it but that's exciting i I think that's going to be an interesting it's going to take place at like a gay conversion camp um which is an interesting setting it's written by john logan who i know is a gay man so i'm thinking it would be tasteful i think a lot of people are worried about it's going to be tasteless i'm hoping that's not the case because i think it could really say something pretty cool um they have a movie called Dark Harvest coming out, which um, I don't know anything about. I know it's a book, uh, but it has a cool poster. Um, 
and it sounds really interesting. I don't want to read the whole synopsis because it's long, even for like a letterbox synopsis. But I'm excited to see it just to see where it goes. And I hear the book is really good. Um, so, I mean, the, the fact that I can talk about this many slasher films for one year when I just did a list of 21, I can talk about 10 right here just for this year. And there's a couple that may be coming out this year, too. Like I mentioned, Wolf Creek 3 may come out this year. To me, that's just really cool, like, to have that ability um, to talk about it. And I really hope this is a good sign, as a massive slasher fan, that this could be a return. Like, I think that's awesome. We're going to keep seeing original content for it. We're going to see these franchises hold on. And like I said, I don't know what Friday 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street are waiting on. I know there's a little bit of complication with F13. But seriously, guys, this window might close. We don't know how long this window will be open. It'll be like, scream, how long was the window open? A little while. But once this fatigue is set in after the 80s, you only get windows now. And take advantage, because we got... It's just... It's frustrating to see, because I think when you could, there's so much potential for Friday 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, especially when you've seen what the other franchises have been able to do, like Child's Play, like Michael Myers, and seeing them just sit there for over a dozen years, that's frustrating. Craven Estate, um, Cunningham and Miller, please, for the love of God, greenlight some good stuff, and let's get this ball rolling. Uh, we, we need the return of these guys. Um, but... I'm going to have one more segment of this, but that's going to be the end of the slasher segment of this. I appreciate you guys so much listening, um, listening to all of this because it was a long episode. I am at an hour and 22 minutes right now, 100 minutes, just talking about slasher movies with you guys. And that has been, I'm glad I've been an opportunity to do this. I know it's a little off brand for us in a way. I mean, it's not really unexpected coming from me, but you get my point. You know, this isn't our typical thing. So I'm hoping some of these can reach people who may have never given these a chance and be open to the fact that there are still good slasher movies out there. They may not be as common as they once was, but they were good once as they ever was. Sorry, I had to get that out. Um, So, yeah, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of plugging for the next segment. So if you want to dip out, that's understandable. Uh, I'm going to talk about Dev Crocodile and their Kickstarter here in a second. um, But before I get into that. So yeah, thank you again. Have a good night, guys. The rest of you, I'll see you here in just a second. So one of our first interviews we ever did on this podcast, and I don't know if they were first. If they weren't first, they were very close to first. But it was Death Crocodile, who has become one of my favorite boutique labels. I have all five of their current releases as of recording this. And um, I think they are just a brilliant company. I think their work is fantastic i love the small team element of it i even mentioned them earlier when i talked about fish and cat and right now uh, as a courtesy to them i do want to talk about their kickstarter for the restoration of solomon king which was a lost film um that was a black exploitation film and from 1974 they are trying to raise fifteen thousand dollars within a month um i am recording this on their first day um, they still have 30 days left of this. They have been uh, active for basically 12 hours by the time I record this, and they have raised $6,140 with 90 backers, and that is some great numbers. They have some really cool rewards. 
Um, you know, I think they're selling some pens, um, which is cool. You can buy a, a streamer for $15. You can just buy the Blu-ray for $30. Uh, and they're offering a exclusive Kickstarter slipcover edition. Like I said, they're not paying me or anything to do this. I'm doing this because I like their work. And as you know, they were one of the first ones to come on and do this for us. So, you know, I think they, they helped us and I feel like only fair to help them. And, you know, they have some good rewards here. I personally went for their, um, there was a $55 tier, which was an exclusive thank you credit where I'll get my name into the film. Uh, there's not many of those spots left. They only have a hundred. I think they have 45 left at the time of recording this. And you also get the exclusive Kickstarter slipcover. So it's a good deal. The slipcover looks like it's going to be real cool. Um, and I'm sure they'll have another slipcover for, I can't speak for them because I don't know, but I have a feeling they'll have one for vinegar syndrome as well. But this one's only going to be exclusive to Kickstarter. So, you know, if you like it, take advantage. They only have a thousand of them and I don't know how quick they'll go, but they're going fairly quick right now. Um, so if you get a chance, um, I'll try to plug this in the description uh, for for them to restore Sal Watt, Solomon King, because I think this if it's like their other stuff, this is going to be worth seeing. And apparently it's got a great soundtrack. And actually, as I just wa- as I just went through this, I just watched, they just got another backer. So now they're at $6,200. This stuff is going. And I hope that, you know, by the time this comes out, yeah, they'll be out for a week, but there'll probably still be some other stuff here. I'm sure there'll still be some slips left. So take advantage, support a great company doing really great stuff with restoration. If nothing else, the preservation of film is important, even if you're not into black exploitation necessarily. I think that's, you can't ask for better work from these boutique companies than to find these films that without them would be lost to time. So that's all I really had for today. Uh, if you stayed around for that part for the Death Crocodile, I thank you. Um, I hope we get a supporter out there for it because that's awesome. I just think uh, supporting companies like that is important. And I will always, I think anyone on this podcast will hopefully continue to do the same. I think we're all media collectors for that reason. But without further ado, Seriously, thank you so much. We're going to be back to doing regular episodes with all three of us very soon. I think we have a recording scheduled in a couple weeks. So, hey, get out there. Like, seriously, do that. Um, So if you've missed all three of us together, it won't be long. This isn't permanent. Um, We just needed, uh, Adam wanted some time, and we would do this for any of us on here. We all need time off sometimes, and I appreciate you letting me and Chris ramble about bullshit we like. I think I know Chris and, uh, enjoys it. I definitely enjoy it. So without further ado, thank you so much. And I can't wait to talk to you guys again very soon. See ya.